We are all born artists and creators, yet slowly but surely our false programming from society, culture, and family takes us down a different path. I was born a spiritual gangster, and the awakened dad is the journey back to myself. My name is Brent Hurd, and I've taken the journey of achieving what I thought was success and found myself lying on an operating table facing the edge of life. My mission is to help as many of us reclaim who it is that we truly are and help 100 million children live out their greatest lives. Join me each Thursday in listening to the stories of those who have made it back to themselves and lived a life of fulfillment and joy. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is The Awakened Dad. We have an amazing guest today, Christopher Carter, who I have known for quite some time, was actually a client of his. Christopher Carter is a spiritual teacher at the intersection of consciousness and business. He is the founder of This Epic Life, a website and podcast devoted to conscious living, which has created a daily meditation practice for thousands. As a meditation teacher and workshop designer, Casey has 6,500 active students on Insight Timer with 120,000 streams. That's a lot. As an executive coach, Carter works with leaders at Amazon, AT&T, and many startups and mid-sized multi-generation family businesses. He's also an accomplished international speaker, MC, and retreat leader whose work has appeared in Business Insider, on stage at TEDx and Wisdom 2.0, and in countless other events. Permission to Glow is his first book, which is coming out in October. Chris built his experience with Centro, who won the number one best place to work in Fortune magazine for an unprecedented four straight years by Crane's Business Chicago because of his work. Carter's a disciple of the teachings of Pramahansa Yogananda through Self-Realization Fellowship and their lineage of masters, touring a multi-instrumental and songwriter. In his teens, Carter continues to write songs and produce his teenage daughter's band. He lives in Akron, Ohio with his wife of 22 years and their three children. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the people that I have been asking for a long time to be on this show, Christopher Carter, uh, just an amazing human. You are going to enjoy this show tremendously and learn a whole lot about leadership, a whole lot about running your individual businesses and using his techniques that he's been building and developing for years now. So please help me welcome Christopher Carter to the show and hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome Chris Carter to the show. Chris, welcome to The Awakened Dad. It's so good to be with you, Brenty. I've missed you and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So let me kind of kick this one off with how important this angel of a human has been in my life. So Chris Carter was the first coach that I have ever had in my life after my awakening and sort of flipped upside down from corporate warrior to spiritual gangster, I was referred to the one and only Chris Carter by a mutual friend of ours from the media business, Chris being a former media guru himself. He said, you may want to talk to Chris. And so we started having some conversations about what I was going through, about how it was connected to the corporate world and, uh, and, and a lot about life. And so Chris has been, Chris, I keep calling him Chris. I actually never call. I ever, I never call you Chris. I actually call you KC. So I kind of like it. It's you, very personal. You like the Feels Chris? Good. Yeah. yeah like let's go with it. Okay. 
So Chris was just massively instrumental in this transformation that I have gone through in my life. And he is now out in the world doing this for executives across the board, companies like Amazon, companies like Smuckers, companies across the gamut, helping leaders, CEOs all the way down in becoming their own spiritual leaders or leaders in general. So super excited to have Casey on the show. And and yeah, what an amazing beginning we had together. Do you remember those days? I do because I was kind of going through a very similar arc. Kind of, I was only a few months ahead of you maybe and going into business for myself certainly, but leaving that ad tech grind behind. My job was eliminated at the end of 2015. I believe we met kind of early-ish 2016, right after I was starting to coach full-time. And yeah, we had a lot to talk about. Our, our mutual friend, as you mentioned, Charlie Thomas introduced us. And I just remember really having a ton of uncertainty that year I was navigating, but also being really committed to making the coaching thing happen. Yeah. I remember later that year when I launched my first retreat, we did it at my home in Akron, Ohio. You, you were supposed to come and you couldn't make it like last minute. I was busting your chops for that. You still should have come. It was incredible. Oh, well, <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah. Yeah. But I did get you to the Encinitas the following year and the year after that. So we made, we more than made up for it. But, but I just remember, I always loved working with you, Brent, because I had a ton of respect for what you created in, in your corporate life, but also that you had this really deep, spiritual curiosity that so many of my clients have ended up having. And it just really gave us a lot of rich conversations to have and, and some just interesting actions to take in our coaching relationship. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, listen, I told you this before, you were, if not the most instrumental, one of the, the biggest pieces of the puzzle for me as I went through this shift. And quite honestly, this shift for me was so... It was dramatic because I was full-time business guy, full-time corporate deal guy, and really didn't know anything else existed in my life. And so when we began to talk, not only did you help me continue to explore it, but in this really amazing way, you held space for me, which was obviously non-judgmental, which was just very open, loving, very much a teacher. And I really had no idea what I was getting into. But once we began, things just began to unfold. And so, so this was, God, this was 2016. And so this was five years ago. And you have since really gone on and built an amazing coaching business. You are about to release this most amazing book called Permission to Glow, which is, and from everything I've studied and, and learned and that you've told me, really a, I feel like this word is vanilla, but almost a manual for leaders in the world to use as a backbone for as we move into this next evolution of time, which in my opinion is much more spiritual in nature. It's people who are beginning to uncover their spirituality. And so this book is like this, yeah, it's like this manual for people to go back and look at and utilize 
as they go out into their lives in this world that I believe has really shifted from a consciousness perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really coming at a very auspicious time in human history. We've gone through so much dark chaos over the last four or five years. It felt like freaking back to the future too, when Biff was mayor for a while. (laughs) And like now it's coming out of it. I, I totally agree. I think that people's consciousness has expanded and they're more ready for a spiritual conversation. And I have to tread somewhat lightly because I work in corporate spheres. So they might not always be open to that conversation or calling it spiritual or calling it whatever. And you and I have talked about this offline so many times. However, God's spirit, it doesn't care what we call it. It just cares that we show up to play the game. And what I always, what I needed in my career, especially as I was jumping from providing for a family of five, as you do this game, but there's some very real world concerns when you're a dad and you have to provide for a family, but to do it through spiritual means or through soul work, the work that we're here to do, it could be very challenging. And I wanted to summarize all of the key lessons, the key practices that supported me in making that leap so others can make that same leap. Except the thing is, I don't want all these leaders I coach to make the leap. I, we need them in the organizations that still hold the fabric of the world together. These people that are leaders of leaders, especially, they can impact so many people and so many families that we want to keep them serving in their best possible way in these organizations. You guys like you and I, we knew we needed to be on the other side of it to affect the change that we wanted to make. But these these corporate warriors, turning them into soul warriors on some level, that that seems to be my work these days. So uh, let me just rewind because you went through a very interesting journey and transformation yourself. And it's like, I, I know your life because I lived a lot of it in the sense of being in the media business, being part of that sort of fraternity, if you will. And then knowing that you needed to, or had a calling that was deeper within. And this is actually a really interesting point because in a lot of the work that I am doing today and really around this show, one of the things that I I believe is that we are all born with this unique seed of greatness. I believe that we come with it. I believe that we then go through our life and we either are moving in that seed at some point in our life, but that seed is in there and it germinates. And we then move into that seed at some point in our lives. The thing I love to say is we're all born artists and creators. No one came out begging to be a corporate executive. That being said, the corporate executives of the world are actually artists and creators as well. So I just wanted to hear a bit about your story, how it came up in you, when what did that look like in actually the knowing? What was the knowing? What kept coming yeah. up that said, I'm, I'm actually going to make it a different turn here? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking. I mean, it, it's w- without going you know, too into the epic saga of it, I would say it's that path is lit by some really powerful kind of touchstone moments that helped help me realize and remember what I'm here to do. So what you call that seed of greatness, I, I kind of call it the divine fingerprint. We all have it and it's our job to discover it. And if we're in that small, tiny percentage of people who have some understanding of what we're here to do, you should feel very blessed. And that doesn't mean that the rest of us don't have an important part to play. Like there's no like, figure out your purpose and then you'll be fine. Your purpose 
will find you if you're receptive to it. And I think my story was just one of becoming increasingly receptive to that story of what I'm here to do. So it started with kind of fumbling around the personal development world. I used to rip all of Tony Robbins' programs off of Napster when I was early in my career. You know, just for some light listening, I would crush all of his programs on audio. And then eventually when I started having some success, I I felt like I owed Tony some money. So I would purchase like front row tickets to go walk on fire with Tony or whatever. And so I love that personal development thing. Brian Tracy, Stephen Covey and the Seven Habits. I was into all of it. And I started realizing that where that personal development path ended, spiritual development began. Mm. So personal development, now when I look at it in retro, retrospectively, like the, really the 80s stuff, I'm a kid of the 80s. I love that 80s achiever shit. That was all about, I got this. It was about extreme confidence and running through walls, macho chest banging. And spiritual development was more like, we got this surrendering into the humility of serving others, letting others support you and opening opening yourself to serving the universal good. So I got on that personal, I'm sorry, spiritual development train, sort of like you. I had a health crisis when I was 26. I almost died of stress-related illness. And after that, I just got really serious about kind kind of the beginning of my sobriety journey, just kind of paring down less desirable crap, being more honest with my wife and with myself. And it still took another eight or nine years to finally kick alcohol. By that point, I was meditating a lot. I had found my guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, and his book, Autobiography of a Yogi. Can't stop reading that book. I'm like on the 12th or 13th read. (laughs) The more you read it, the more you need it. And yeah, the more I meditated, the more I surrendered into and just kind of listened to this radio signal inside ourselves, like that quiet voice whispering, you might want to try this. And by that, I had, by that time, I had already started having people in my corporate life calling me a coach saying, wow, you're like my life coach. I tell you everything. You, you open me up to whatever. And I didn't have the formal training for that. But as I deepened my own spiritual practice, that training eventually came to pass and all the clients came with it. So it's, it has been a real long arc of a marathon in, way, in a way, but it has been very deliberate moments and practices that have contributed to that kind of awakening as you call it. Yeah. And so Casey, as you, I guess like if you kind of even go further back into your childhood as a kid and teenager and were there pieces of that puzzle that you ever touched and were there pieces of the puzzle that showed up for you as a kid? What did that look like? Oh yeah. Oh gosh. It's such an awesome question. So, so I'll share two quick little stories. One is that when I was maybe like four or five, I, I saw this local TV evangelist and this guy's a hack. He's, he recently passed away, but typical hypocrite doesn't walk the talk, but preaches the fire and brimstone shame of God or Jesus or whoever. And I turned it on a Sunday morning, Ernest Angley, his name is Ernest Angley. And basically I was so scared that I was going to hell because I couldn't make it to his church to give him money or whatever it was that I made a promise to God that night that I would pray every single day for the rest of my life. And if I didn't, I would go to hell. And so I'm a little kid, right? So I'm like, by night three, I was tired and fell asleep and didn't pray. So I woke up the next morning thinking like, okay, this is it. I'm going to hell. And so I had this kind of twisted, skewed version of religion and spirituality. I thought God was angry with me all the time. And Separate from that, my mom, I was raised by a single mother. My my dad's an amazing guy, just 
didn't know him as much growing up. And my mom always like really fanned these flames of being an artist and a musician. So I told her I wanted to be Barry Manilow. She got me a piano. You know, I, I told her I wanted to write songs and she helped me get into bands and all this stuff. And so I wanted to be a performer and I, and then something in me really wanted to have a direct experience of what God was. I, I, I didn't like this intellectual warped perception of using God for shame or guilt or whatever that like the, the organized religion thing turned me off, but knowing spirit really turned me on. And I think that those two formative things helped set me on the path to what I do. And that's fascinating. But when, and when you talked about how your mom was so supportive, like immediately I think to myself, how supportive you are with your daughter. Sidebar, Casey has a amazingly talented, he has three amazingly talented kids, but his daughter is, is in a band called Detention that has gotten actually a ton of press and media and is really moving into a starlight, limelight place. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's true. They made their festival debut here in Cleveland last weekend. Wow. Them. They're going to be on the main stage next like 20,000 people. Wow. It's, it's, their their wow. ages are 14 to 18. Oh. She's, she's turning 17 tomorrow. Yeah. But that's probably a whole nother podcast. Maybe we can have you and her on next time. So, so I want to go back to something you just said around really like connecting with spirit. And this is something that I, cause I look, I feel it as well. It is within me as well. I look for so many different ways to connect with spirit. I wanted to ask you, what does that mean to you? What does that look like to you? What does that feel like to you? So Yogananda is my primary teacher or, or guru is it's referred to in India or Hinduism. Um, so guru means dispeller of darkness. And what the guru teaches is yoga at its absolute essence. And so in the United States, we think yoga is like downward facing dog, stretchy, nice abs, nice butt, uh, which it can be those things. But in ancient India, it was more about the meditation, which was union with spirit. So yoga means union with spirit. So to me, that question is about the practices, the scientific practices that open you up and make you receptive to spirit, meditation being the primary one. But on some days, like when I'm working on this book and I'm so busy or whatever, it might just be walking out into, into nature and consciously looking for little hints of divinity around us. And sometimes we experience that as nature. Sometimes we experience that in our children's smile, certainly holding a brand new baby and looking into that baby's eyes. I mean, you will see divinity. And, uh, and on our best days, we get to witness our own divinity. But anymore, it's really about, there's a lot of bad meditations and there's some really good blessings that are good meditations. And I think it's that feeling of just feeling oneness or feeling at peace with exactly where we are in a given moment. One of the, and, and, and I'm sure this is a lot of the work that you do. I know this is a lot of the work that you do. So, so many of us have these Dreams and whether these, I was going to say these big dreams, just dreams, like just things that like really speak to us in our lives. And my experience was I've had this, I've had this dream for a long time. My own survival skill has really gotten in my way of what will people think when I come and speak spirit and talk yeah. this spiritual man that I am. And everyone has their own version of that thing for whatever their dream is. 
And I'm, yeah. sh- I have to imagine this comes up in, in so much of your coaching work. Constantly. Yeah. And one of the other kind of philosophies that I've learned is that like as a soul, we are so powerful. Like we have so much that we are able to accomplish just in the world. Really, whatever it is that we want to accomplish, we have this ability to because there's so much actually happening behind the scenes that none of us really see. And I wanted to just talk a little bit about this subject with you And as it comes up with your clients, as people come to you, because I know people come to you with, here's what I want to accomplish. Here's what my dream is. And you being the coach, this executive coach, one of your sort of pieces of magic is really helping people to take them towards that dream and towards that road. And I wanted to just begin to uncover some of the things that you have learned that gets in our way to accomplishing the dream, to becoming the thing, the person, whatever it is that sort of lives within us. Sure. I want to really dive into that. Yeah. It's a really valuable conversation to have. I mean, inside each one of us. And I call it in my book is I call it the big honking dream. Like we all have the big honking dream and it's so much more alluring and we can feel it in our body viscerally if we call it a big honking dream, call it what it is, versus calling it a smart goal or an achievement or a resolution, like all these things that we've been trained into not achieving. And the reason we don't achieve those things is because of the stories that we tell ourselves, you know, the, the stories that we practice, the contexts. And so in coaching, we listen to this river of thought vomit called content, and we're looking for the context, how the client holds themselves in relationship to that big honk and dream. So what is the story you tell yourself about the big honk and dream? Do you tell yourself it's and it all achievable or possible? Or do you tell us, or you tell yourself it's, well, it's not mine because this other person on Instagram has it and it's a zero sum game. So if they're doing it, I don't, I can't do it. Or I'm not smart enough, or I don't love myself enough. Those are all the most probably common context is I'm not worth it. I'm not worthy of it. I I can't, couldn't quite love myself enough to go be irresponsible and do this big honking thing when I have this family to provide for and all of this responsibility. Those are the things I butt up against every single day when doing, like, even though I've built my own business at this point, now I'm shifting that business over towards being an author and teacher, not just a coach. And I'm not trying to minimize coaching. It's an honor to be a coach, but even in making that shift, I notice it come up in a whole different way. And it shows up as the imposter syndrome. Who am I to dot, dot, dot? Who am I to have this house and this wife and this business and this book? Can we hold all of it? And I think that's a very spiritual conversation, frankly, is that we all have these, we trigger what I call these capacity issues. Like we can't hold all of this goodness that God wants to pour into us because we think our little container will burst. But if we expand that container through practice and, and through being and being with our dreams and feeling into our dreams, that container can expand to hold more of what God just wants to pour in. And so another way to think about this is like when you were asking the question, I was just kind of picturing your chakras and my own chakras and the chakras down from the base of the spine are very root chakras. That's our ability to, to make stuff happen in the world, to just activate and do. And executives are hired and, and groomed 
to do that, to execute, right? And then we, if we're blessed, we, we discover spiritual practice. And that's from like our crown chakra on down to about our heart, just above our heart. And we could get really well versed in these different practices. Well, my work was, I, I was pretty good at doing stuff at the root level. And then I discovered later in my life, the spiritual practice piece. But a lot of us have this broken piece of the highway in our heart. But this is where Brenty lives in the heart. And, and to connect the higher realms of spiritual possibility to the lower roots of activating and doing. And when we thread that and we connect those two things, that's when all things become possible. That's, because, that's when we are able to become I'm a vessel for spirit to manifest. So on my best days, I feel like a balloon animal, like, oh, wow, where did this come from? It's because I, I trip over having that connected. But that's my work with my coach. And that's my work with a lot of the leaders I work with is to, once they're convinced that they could actually do the thing and they have the spiritual wisdom and insight to man- to visualize it, that threading of the heart to, to make it real. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that is... That's divine. That 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 was that might have just come from much. Well, it's like it's increasingly the waters that I get to swim in with people. Like e- even my friends that are pretty accomplished spiritual teachers, people that have written many books, been on Oprah, talking about their books, like accomplished people. We we still have that gap that we have to work on in our heart to allow just the sheer volume of love that it takes to show up for that kind of work day in and day out. It, it's like an incredible labor of love. And I, I see it show up in us in just different versions of the same challenge. Man, I am so happy I get to talk to you today, by the way. So what do you, what have you found that blocks the heart chakra? What have you found that is the, the impediment in that heart area? Yeah. Can we, yeah, yeah, definitely. So let, let's use an Iron Man analogy because I love, I live in the MCU almost as much as I do in the real world because of my son who's nine. <laughs> so um, Iron Man, Tony Stark gets blown up in the first film. The guy that saves him puts a reactor in his chest to keep that shrapnel from entering his heart. So that, sh- I heard your question is shrapnel. And the shrapnel is, are these little agreements our little kid brain makes with the people who raise us. They're doing the best they can. They're using the skills that their gener- the generation above them gave them to parent kids. Like all of us parents, we need to have compassion because we mostly assume we're doing it wrong and usually we are. <laughs> but uh, but there are little kid brains, I believe, make these agreements with something they hear. And it's kind of a faulty logic that you can't do that. Do this. Like my mom, she didn't mean to, but she sold me on plan B. Like I was touring as a professional musician. She said, you know, bass players are kind of a dime a dozen. You might want to have a backup plan. Well, in my house, there is no backup plan. There's plan A and that's it. So if if somebody asked me like, well, what's Elliot going to do? What's my daughter Elliot going to do if the band doesn't do this or doesn't do that? It's like, Elliot's going to be an artist no matter what she does. There's just no doubt. So I, I think that that block for most of us just comes from a faulty agreement and it could be massaged out. You could put a nuclear reactor of arc reactor of possibility in there to keep that, you know, shrapnel out of your heart. You could pour in more self-compassion than you possibly could have learned growing up. You know, we think that it's selfish or soft skills or weak to just pour love into our own heart. When in reality, that's some of the bravest work that I've ever witnessed, especially with men. I've seen you working, doing the work at, at like our retreats and other things. I mean, that's there's nothing more inspiring than a man 
that's willing to do that work and to weep and to love themselves and to appreciate what's like, I, I remember the genesis of this idea, the awakened dad, I was in the room when it was yeah. born and I yeah. felt it yeah. because you were loving yourself enough to see it and to trust everyone to support it. And we usually hold our big honking dreams as a very fragile, delicate thing that's going to get eradicated by somebody. Somebody's yeah. going to steal it or destroy it. But when we love ourselves enough, we let it eventually grow and bloom. I, I mean, I, I, I see the, the scene, actually. You had actually asked me a question about, it was either about the Awakened Dad or it was just about me as a dad. and But it had to do with the Awakened Dad. And I couldn't answer you because I was so emotional. I had to walk out of the room. You're like, you okay, dude? I was like, I can't hold, I literally couldn't hold it. It was so, it it connected me to such a deep level of me, which I now believe it connected me to a soul, really a soul, the most core sort of soul part of me. And it it was like- I kind of remember the question. What was the question? I think the question had to do with and, and this is the fourth permission in my book, Permission to Glow in the Light. And how does your work serve the universal good? Who does it serve? Yeah. And you were starting to come into view and surrender to the idea that it served millions of kids, not just your own kids, but if you could father and parent in some way all these other kids to the degree that you felt these children deserved what you do your best to do with your kids. It was just this very moving moment and everybody in the room felt it. Does this ring a bell? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody in this room felt it. Like I, and I think I said, I'm like, would you adopt a 40, whatever year old man? Because yeah. I, I want you to be my dad That's too right. while you're at it. Yes. But, but that, yes. that tapping into purpose and yeah. surrendering to the enormity of that purpose yeah. was I think what gobsmacked you and took you out of the room for a little while. My goodness. It was like, that was actually one of the kind of, you know, there's been a few seminal moments in my life. That was very much a seminal moment. You, there was actually an exercise you had, you asked us to do, which was to write down sort of what was coming to us. This notebook, I keep it in my bag every single day. And I, I, I really wrote down what it meant to me to actually go out and do this work. And it was some of, it was actually quite honestly, some of the most spiritual text that I've ever written on paper in my life ever. Well, being in Encinitas and marinated in Yogananda's vibes and all the other magical stuff we did, time bending, all this, it didn't hurt. You know, like we were all in this like bubble of possibility. And when we get to that last night where things are just very real and raw and authentic, that connection to purpose and vocation, like elevating your career. And you start to realize that for the honor of doing something that matters that freaking much to us, we would be willing to clock in and work for decades and oh. decades. And cause you can't quantify how much work it takes to do this kind of stuff. It's like, it's not about the dollars bills. Thank God. At first you're like, well, it's like in Napoleon dynamite where he's like moving chickens for seven hours. He's like, that's like, 10 cents an hour. But when you realize like when you stay on that path, that value and the money and everything starts to compound because I believe it's God testing us. Like, were you serious about honoring your commitment? Because we feel your commitment. But when you're serious about honoring it, then is what they say in the Bible. All things are added unto you. Like you start getting allies and resources and investments and all the clients you can handle. And it's really a trip. And I, I love those 
really seminal moments where people realize what the thing is. And, and to have that with you was such an honor, not, not only as like a, a coach friend, but also a, just a witness and everybody in the room, I think really felt it that day. Oh man. It was unbelievable. Honest to God. It was unbelievable. It was it, because for me, and you know this, cause you made my, I have had, even though I talk so vulnerably and I, I discuss so vulnerably and I want to talk about the, everything that's in me, there are many times where that vulnerability gets just shut down for whatever, for the, the smallest yeah. thing, that little, it's like that little door just goes, whoosh, and I mean, that thing closes so quickly in, you know, certain areas and cases of my life. And, and I often am like, God, like I'm, I, I speak so vulnerably and I really enjoy it. And I love connecting like spiritually. And then like something will happen in my life and it'll be like vulnerability is like, whoop. Shut, it's off now. Well, well, you get this unique perspective. I mean, like we all get a very unique perspective, but your unique perspective includes walking in some pretty influential circles with big leaders of big companies. I remember coaching you through some big decisions about career. And I, I remember telling my wife at the, at like during that time, I'm like, I can't tell him at all what type of decision to make because all these are monster decisions and he needs for you and your, those are your and your wife's decisions, right? But to be at the table with Kings, I mean, part of your professional career has been to be at the table with Kings and Queens. And because you have that high degree of vulnerability, it can feel inappropriate or too much or too soft or too whatever. So coaching you was always like watching you get to the precipice of that door yeah. opening, look inside and be like, Oh shit, but it closed <laughs> a little too vulnerable in there. Totally. And, uh, yeah. But, but that, that's, as you've seen, that's where the magic is. Like in, in the book, I, I say that shutdown of vulnerability, I call it game face. We slap the game face back on because we can't be with the power and the authenticity of that level of vulnerability. It's just too much. We think we're going to alienate ourselves yeah. or tigers are going to eat us. It's, it's just too vulnerable. It's so true. It is so true in that. And yeah, as a guy that played in these games with, I love, I mean, I, you say sat with Kings. I don't know. I mean, that's a big statement, but yes, yeah, sat with these, like, yeah, these top leaders in, in the business world. And I remember this, that I, I just got to tell this one story. So I was sitting with Maybe the biggest business leader I've ever sat with in my life. He was the CEO of a very large organization that was just has accomplished a tremendous amount. We were having dinner and he has more on his plate than anyone that I know in my life. And I said, I asked him the question. I said, so how are you, how do you deal with all of this? Like, how do you handle this? And the response was not even to the question that I asked. It was like, I, it was like the question didn't even land. And his response was something that had to do with the business or some, something that was much more concrete. And so it was, that was my cue to not go down that road with this person. And I see it so much with men. And I see it so much with men in men in business, just men in my life around me, whether at the country club or whether friends of mine from just wherever that just have this deep fear of going to these places. And so what I always, because what I know is that joy and creativity and innovation are all on the other side of this. And so what I wonder is, 
where that fear came from in so many of us guys to allow us to actually walk down the road that is going to give us the most out of life, the absolute Mm -hmm. most. And sometimes I try to ask the question and sometimes I try to, sometimes I just intuit kind of what happened to, 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 to people in their lives. But I'm just curious, like what are, do you get into the specifics around that, around sort of what? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have to, when, when people show up to me for coaching now, they have to think seriously if they're willing to enroll with me because I will launch missiles in the first five minutes to get their attention and to bust through that bullshit. And I prepare them for it on some level, but they're still ill-prepared because that's what I needed with my coach. I was like, the gloves are off. And and I, I think, it's, so to answer your question, to explore that, I think is really important because part of it is the fear, of course, like the social conditioning and the fear of being you know, perceived as weak or whatever, too feminine, too, too soft, too, and not focused on all the achievement that men are you know, rewarded for. And they buy, they buy into that false premise that they are what they accomplish or the, the armor that we put on with, I got this. It's proving myself as a capable man that's cool. That's powerful. We all have to figure out how to like mow our grass and then hire a lawn service and then you know, do more <laughs> stuff. We all have to figure that out yeah. at some point, right? That's like that lower shocker crap. Yeah. But like, but to use that as your whole paradigm of self-worth, that's really dangerous because when people lose their job and we, we've been through this, I had to grieve my last career when it went away because when that job is removed, it's like losing a chunk of your identity. And there are many good men. We lost a lot of good men out there. There are a lot of good men in our, and especially in the generation above us that when they lose a job, it's catastrophic. Right. It's like they're dying on their feet. They're, they're walking dead because that job title is taken away. And like, they'll, they'll be like the big swing and executive one day, and then in the posting on LinkedIn the next day, open a job opportunities and they feel like they've had their entire identity eradicated. And that's a really dangerous place to live. So I, um, I really try to reinforce with people that you are so much more than you accomplish. Simone Biles just taught us this all very beautifully by pulling out of the Olympics this week to, to protect her mental health. She's like, you all reminded me that I'm more than my gymnast, gymnastic performance. I'm more than my accomplishments. That's like that toxic masculinity thing that bleeds over into female athletes too. But when, um, when, I work with people, I really try to get them to practice removing these different masks we wear. There's four common ones I talk about in the book. Speedy Rabbit, just moving faster than everybody else and judging everybody along the way. That's a common one, being over-caffeinated with everything you do. Uh, game face, which I mentioned, which is like the, the, the reluctance to any vulnerability whatsoever. Uh, the phantom pest, which is just like this swooping and pooping micromanager that just drives everybody crazy. They're oblivious to their own power, so they try to control the dumb crap they can control. And then Dark Star, which is basically this like epic version of somebody who hasn't removed the game face mask. This is the person who is unable to receive help. And when you said that you're sitting down with that, that person, they had Dark Star vibe, which is basically, there's a no go there. There's like a, we're not in the same galaxy right now because in my book, I'm shining like the sun and your question implies that there's something wrong with me. Mm. It's like, well, I never implied there's anything wrong with you. I'm just here to help. I'm here to help you reflect or to understand, or I'm curious, but that's like a, when you see people's armor go up in that level of deflection, that means that, that they're unwilling and unable 
to do that work. Mm. What are some of the missiles that you launch in the beginning or what's some of the prep that you give just to make sure that these people, because I know like, I actually know that you don't take every client that comes your way. And like, so what's that process? I'm trying to ascertain coach. Like I'm trying to understand coachability because if they just want to have a rock star coach as another accomplishment, that doesn't work for me. They have to be willing to do the work. And if I figure out that they're not able or willing to do the work, we won't work together. But if early on, if, if they're doing the thing constantly that I know already is in their way, yeah, I'll just like, like throw a wrecking ball at it. So like I got on this uh, call a couple of weeks ago with this amazing dude. I love coaching this guy. He's incredible. Very high senior executive, incredibly smart. And what do incredibly smart people do? They always try to prove they're like vegans. They want you to remember that they're vegan. They want you to know that they're the smartest person in the room at all times. So they will speak faster and, and like solve problems. They're like Dr. Strange playing out all the freaking probabilities of things. And so my wife was in here cause she's training to become a coach. She's starting to take a lot of clients. So she's in here shadowing me while I'm training this guy. This is my first time, first call with this guy. I'm excited to talk to him and he keeps doing this thing. So I let him run his mouth for a little while. And I'm like, are you about ready to slow the fuck down? And, and he just stopped. And I was like, I can't understand a word you're saying. Kind of like the Willy Wonka move yeah. that Johnny Depp plays in the new Willy Wonka. He's yeah. like, I, every time you talk, it's just, it's just like gibberish. And, and he back on his heels, what do you mean by that? Yeah. I'm like trying to slow down our chick. I'm like, I, I want to create space in your game so we could understand what we're working on so we could enjoy the creation of it versus this blowing past it, knock it off. Like, like that is the thing that's in your way of creating whatever you want to create. So it's uncomfortable to, I want to be the guy that everybody likes, but when I'm coach, I have to be willing to be a mirror for their process. And sometimes they're not going to like what they see. Right. And Casey of, of most of the, of your clients, um, and it's God, it's it's going to be so amazing because when the book comes out, it's, you're going to be like, here you go. Here's basically everything I've, everything I've learned, everything I've, you know, sort of helped you through. Here's now sort of your own manual for starting point, and, yeah, for, you know, starting point, and obviously for everyone else. How many of these executives that you coach have this sort of dream that is not connected to work, that is outside of the corporate world? That is, I'd say a hundred percent, all of us, every human being, if they're willing to be honest with themselves, has that big honking dream that probably exists far outside of their marriage or the, the marriage to their company or whatever they're building. But the real beauty of it in coaching is to create the life you're capable of from exactly where you are to build the bridge from where you are. And I mean, I remember hammering this into you and every single person I've ever worked with is like, you could only start where you are and there's grace in that. You get to rediscover where you live and where you work and how you serve. And uh, so I'd say a hundred percent of them have that big dream. And, and some of them make moves to other greener pastures and some of them do the harder work of falling in love all over again with what they're doing and show up differently. And that's when they see major shifts and they're usually really grateful that they didn't have to blow up their career to do it. Right. Right. And I know that because I know you so well and I know your work, not only, yes, obviously moving into, not moving into, you're an author and you're a teacher. I mean, that's, that, that, that is who you are. I mean, the coaching is work that I assume you'll continue to do on some level, but as it pertains to 
the teaching itself, what does that look like in, yeah. in your form, in your world? What does the future of that look like? Yeah, it's taking shape all the time. And I meditation and different practices I do with my coach and other people. I'm always looking for new marching orders and listening into what that is. And I knew that this book release will be kind of the delineation point between like a point of arrival and a point of departure. My, my work and my business will be a different animal on the other side of it. And it's already starting to take shape. I mean, my wife is starting to take on clients, as I mentioned. I'm staffing up a team of coaches to coach the four permissions that are out, outlined in the book. And as I handle off and funnel, I'm, I'm more of like a matchmaker for companies with great coaches. And my work is to always be working on the next book, the next retreat. I want to do retreats every six months, one international, one domestic. And in between, just crafting books, crafting teaching and programs. And I've committed to my publisher this week to deliver four more books after this one. So there's going to be a book for each of the four permissions. Wow. So I'm, start, I'm starting permission to chill like literally in a couple months after this one's done. That's brilliant. After this one's up. Can I call that breaking news? It is kind of breaking news and it scares the crap out of me to even hear it leave my mouth. But it's a declaration is that I always picture this being a series of books that progressively lead people deeper, further down their spiritual path. Yeah. And um, it would, there, there was no way to, to th this first book, I had to write about 70,000 words to get to the 30,000 that people would actually read. It was a very chiseled, light read and then to set up each of the four permissions, but I, they, they deserve to go deeper. So I'll start with the first one, permission oh. to chill, which is meditation training. It's well, I mean, obviously it's spirit is in this conversation because the question I had wanted to actually ask you about mm -hmm. prior was, was around meditation and I lost my train and went to the teacher part, but I, and I know how much you've done in terms of teaching meditation. I've actually, the, Picture yeah, you joined me for one in AT. You came to the AT and T one. You connected exactly me with right. that gig, that's and you came exactly to that executive right. AT and T meditation session. That's that exactly awesome. right. But there's one I specifically see in my mind where you're in the middle of a room, and there are I don't know a couple, few hundred people around you in like circle, like yeah, big circle, yeah, big yeah. circle chairs next to each other. I want to talk a little bit about meditation. I want to talk a little bit about teaching yeah. meditation because I know it's a passion of yours. So, so my first question on that is. So left the corporate world, you knew that meditate or you knew that meditation was the, what do we call it? What will I call it? The, the, the staircase down or the elevator down, maybe sort of mm -hmm. beginning to get into your deeper self. Like the, it's like, to me, it's the essential practice because it creates discernment. So we could tell, we could even tell what serves us and what like that, that, that to me was like, like this job doesn't serve me. These people are not kind or it's not worth the money or, you know, whatever this client's giving me an ulcer. Like yeah. the, it helps to meditate, to be able to like understand what serves you and what doesn't. Yeah, sure. And so you began to teach that and and what was that experience like right when you started to teach meditation as you were making the transition from the corporate world? Like, yeah. yeah give oh, me, yeah. Give it me was, a little bit it's really that. weird. And, and this is in the book is that my, my good friend and my mensch, I call him my mentor, uh, Jonathan Fields. He's like my mensch and my mentor. He basically threw me in the front of the room to, to lead meditation in Costa Rica. And I... I wanted to be that and I envisioned myself as the meditation teacher, but I never 
had formal training. It was kind of like with coaching, like it found me. And I was really passionate about sharing what I was learning and what was working for me. Everything started changing as all my teachers told me it would when I consistently meditated. So once I got to 15 minutes a day, every day, no excuses, my work and my passion became getting as many people, many brothers and sisters as possible to get to that same level of consistency. And now those early seeds I planted with a handful of students or like a few hundred people through my website, whatever, I'll run into people like now five, six, seven years later, they're like, dude, I haven't missed a day in like like 1,500 days. And, and it's profound. Like they'll say, I don't drink anymore. My, my, no drama in my life, no better job, better whatever. And so I, I kind of knew early on that it was the essential practice. And then it just became like anything else, just the, like a new podcast or anything else, like figuring out your flow to what do I have that's unique to teach about this? And for busy corporate speedy rabbit types, what can I offer that will help them create the unshakable habit? And it all became about creating the habit. Cause like once I created the habit, that's what changed for me. And in teaching it, would you go organization to organization or how would the, what does teaching it look like in corporate America? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. It's one of these practices where if you're, if your heart's in the right place and you're not a shyster, there's a lot of shyster coaches. There's many, there's, there might be as many shyster meditation teachers as there are shyster coaches, but through no fault of their own, you're like, we all want to teach something. But when you're practicing, I believe it becomes magnetic to give people that gift that worked for you. So I started the first corporate meditation program at the company I worked for. It was called The Pause. I still use The Pause as the permission to chill icon for that reason. So I was trying and failing at that at the corporate level because not many people were taking it seriously, but I was learning about what would get it to stick. And then Jonathan would give me more opportunities to do training in his cohorts of Good Life Project people. And then I started getting offers to do corporate stuff in other places. And now I'm so blessed. My, my site's kind of established where with people, Google meditation training, Ohio meditation training, Chicago, usually my site comes up. So I'll start talking to AT&T, Avery Dennison, National Interstate Insurance. I just did a big thing for EXP Realty in Washington. And yeah, it's interesting how it's taken shape because I, I believe that yoga, when you practice it, it's like a vine that propagates through your life. If you water those roots, it'll flower and bloom. And meditation's the same way. Like first it, it gives you the gifts in your own life. And then if you're ready to take the step into teaching, you attract the teachers, the clients, the allies, but only, only if you're taking your own practice seriously. So I'm out of integrity if I'm not practicing myself and I'm trying to teach people to be consistent. So it becomes this very kind of serious, to me, it's a serious part of the mission of the work. I, I love teaching meditation. It's like a, it's a deep passion. And unfortunately, a lot of companies won't invest what I think it's worth. So I have to be creative with that. I call coaching my Trojan horse because coach, like I'll wheel coaching up like, Hey, you need an executive coach, but what you're going to get is like a a 300 Spartans that want to teach you how to meditate. You know what I mean? That's what I really care. That's what I actually care about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so, so back to, to permission to chill, can we get, can we get any insight in terms of sort of what are the other pieces of that puzzle uh, as you're beginning to think through it? And, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so with, with the permission to chill, there, there's a standing meditation workshop that I offer that I do for all my corporate clients. That picture you're talking about with the big circle, that's on my LinkedIn page. That was with 200 female leaders at Avery Dennison. And we create what's called the epic circle where we're shoulder to shoulder, nowhere to hide, no tables with phones or computers, no notebooks. And it's just us vulnerably sitting across from our peers shoulder to shoulder meditating. And you know, we, we do a lot of tip, you know, tricks and fun shenanigans to get them excited. And then we sit down and, and really experience what stillness can feel like. And by the end of it, I get commitments written down, stuck to the wall, and I take pictures of them and send them out for accountability. But the, the reason permission to chill is the most important is because it's the first of the four permissions. Like if, if you're not willing to clear your own mental canvas, how are you supposed to hear the wisdom of your emotions, which is the second permission, feel all the feels, what you call vulnerability, emotional intelligence. We need that clear canvas that's free from all of our made up stories about how the world's working against us. When, we're, when we chill, then we can feel. And when we're willing to feel, that gives us the footing we need for the third permission, which is permission to glow in the dark. Yeah. And permission to glow in the dark is the reason why most people want to hire a coach. Like, dude, I want to glow in the dark. That sounds awesome. It still gives me chills every time I say it. Like, how do I find my version of that? It's like, well, first sit your ass down and be quiet for a moment and try to chill. If you're able to, we could, we could interpret what your emotions are telling you and, and then design your unique contribution, which I think is glowing in the dark. That's full expression, despite the ever present fear. You and I have had so many conversations at the precipice, like gut churning, doubled over fear. Like I got to take this job or this will happen, or I got to do this or that. And it's like, well, when you let go, your glow is actually on the other side of that. And and it's such a paradox, like for Mm. achiever men to grasp, Mm. but when they're willing to surrender into that, feel part and the chill part, that's when they will actually glow. Mm. And then the fourth permission, as I mentioned, is permission to glow in the light. That's the work of the integrated collective of souls who have done the earlier work on themselves to move through those first three permissions. Then they are humble enough and collaborative enough to not compete, but to uplift. Mm. And that... I feel like it's the bigger long-term calling of this work. When I get get around to writing book number five, make hopefully in the next four or five years, that's uplifting this very broken planet on which we live. Yeah, yeah. Permission to chill, permission to feel the feels, permission to glow in the dark, and permission to glow in the light. Yeah. Man. And so, so let me dive into quickly glow in the dark because this is, I think, so so interesting around essentially when we can surrender, when we can just sort of like, like when that fear shows up and like you said, you got to get oh, a job, yeah. got to do that thing, like holding it so tightly, like gripping it, like Clenching. white, yeah, yeah. white knuckle <laughs> gripping it. Like the world will just crumble in if I don't do this thing. That's how you know you're close. Yeah. So you're close. So you mean when you're holding it, when, and then when you just can surrender into the feeling of the fear, surrender into the moment. What's, give me, yeah. talk to him about. So there's a, uh, a section in the book called Get Up, Perform Anyway. And it was inspired by my daughter when she was in this in the finals for this big rock and roll hall of fame competition last year. And, and she lost her voice during the, the uh, preliminary round and she's the singer. So it's like to get up in front of a thousand people, including judges, be one of the only 
two or three females in the entire competition and then to not have a voice, that's about as vulnerable and open to failure as you could possibly be. Like all she could do was croak and squeak. She had no voice. And so I watched her that night get up and do it anyway. And she was kind of like an MC. She was like somewhere between like Vince Neil from Motley Crue, who doesn't sing either, <laughs> but he just like gets the crowd hype. And, yeah. but she was willing to go out there like a warrior being open to fail, but willing to fight. And when you're open to fail, that to me is the precipice of something extraordinary because you, you have to confront your biggest fear, which is like a very public failure. We build that hype up in our minds, make it super significant. But when we're confronted with it, we realize like, oh, this is the time. This is where I'm clenching. This is where I'm holding on so tightly. So I, I just call it get up, perform anyway, do your best. Like, you know, like when we're salespeople in our career, did you ever see a salesperson just melt down when their PowerPoint didn't work? Like if they don't have this pitch of slides, somehow they have nothing to offer the client. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? And I see it with CEOs too. They're like, my presentation's not working. I'm like, Spoiler alert, you are the content. Right. You are the content. Like, right. How about we ask the stupid yeah. ass slides? Nobody wants to be PowerPointed anyway. But that, that relationship to the, the gut churning fear and the willingness to throw the switch anyway, the throwing the switch is basically God just kind of edging us up to the cliff and being like, watch, watch what's about to happen here. You're going to fly, I promise you. And you'll fall and you'll flail and you'll freak and you'll blah, 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 blah. But sure, sure enough, before you splat, you'll get lift, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and th- those are the transcendent moments that I live for in coaching. Yeah. And it's never fun watching a client get to that place, but it wasn't really fun watching my three children getting delivered naturally either. But then the moment of the miracle happens. Yeah, yeah. wow. And so as men, I guess, or women, yeah, men or women, we deal with this level of fear in our life from many things, whether it be something uncomfortable, whether it be something we have to, we, we need to do in our work world, whatever it may be. But there, fear, fear shows up often. And one of the biggest fears that I have had myself, that I have also known of many others that have themselves, is the fear of what other people think of them for doing whatever the thing is. I mean, obviously mine for doing this, but I've seen it numerous times. I'm very curious your opinion on where does that come from? What is the programming behind that level of fear around caring so deeply what others are going to think of us that in many cases we won't do it because of that fear? Well, I think that it's the same thing that drives us at a very core level as human beings is that we are pack animals. We are tribal. We want and need to be part of communities or we feel vulnerable. Are In the Human Genome Project, there are just as many similarities in the human genome to, to honeybees as there are to orangutans. So we think we're just as big ape mammals, but our ability to organize is incredibly strikingly similar to that of a honeybee. 
Okay, so there's that. So when we come up against the fear of ostrac- uh, being ostracized or judged or eaten by jackals because we're off away from the pack, that's a very real primal fear and it's part of our lizard brain and it's probably always going to be there. And it's tied, it plays very well with that imposter syndrome, who am I to dot, dot, dot. But what's been your direct experience? The more that you give yourself permission to be Brenty, all the corporate people and whoever else that you thought were going to be judge, jury, and executioner are like, well done, sir. That's right. <laughs> More of that, please. Yeah. I want you to be my dad. They totally. tell you the same thing I yep. did, right? Yep. So I, I had this opportunity when I was in, when I worked for Centro in the ad tech space, I give a lot of credit to who I grew into as my professional self now, to Sean Riegsecker, who was the CEO. Sean was always super open, Mennonite guy, very open spiritually and very loving and supportive. And he would, he gave me carte blanche to send out this ridiculous monthly personal uh, development newsletter to the entire company. Like I didn't need to have it checked by HR. I didn't need to have it vetted. Just whatever crazy shit came to my mind that I need, I felt people needed to know. I just hit send it to the entire company. And every month before I hit send on that, like I would feel like I was going to die. Like I was like sweating bile kind of vibe and yeah. just felt like I, I was just sitting there like this because I'm like, this is the one that's going to just put it over top. Cause it was like half humorous and irreverent and up to the line of inappropriate. Yeah to get people's attention. And that, that became like my coaching voice, but then also it had a lot of deep spiritual overtones and wisdom. And I don't know which one made me more uncomfortable, but every time I hit send, I was just like, Oh God, that's it. This is like HR's coming. Right. And then the HR guy would be the first reply and be like, well played, sir. Like I forwarded it to my whole family and then blah, blah, blah. And like, but that, the practice of doing the thing that makes us uncomfortable. The, the reason why writing the glow in the dark chapter was so hard for me was that I thought it was only about full expression. Like screw you guys. I'm going to glow in the dark, but it's like, no, I'm going to embrace the darkness. I'm going to make the fear the perfect venue to unleash my light because it's with, it's by this contrast, the willingness to play in the darkest corner of our, of our, of our psyche that we are able to, show something that just hasn't been seen before. And it's such a, God, it's such a thrilling ride on the other side of it. But I get that the fear is very real for a lot of people. And I, I come up against it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, so how do you handle that when it shows up? I mean, yeah, cause you're about to make very, I mean, well, you have made very big yeah. leaps and bounds, but like things are about to get really yeah. big, leapy and boundy. Right. And so what, how do you do when you wake up and you feel, first of all, what does it feel like to you? What does fear feel like to you? Uh, fear for me feels like just being inexplainably grumpy with my kids, yeah. telling myself that I'm just wrong about everything, um, being really tender and quick triggered and impatient, maybe a little over caffeinated and frazzled. Like I could tell I'm living in a fear space when those little critters are running amok. I, I, I started doing TV interviews for the book last week. And just before I got into my first one, I was determined to make it the worst morning of my life. I was complaining to everybody about everything. It was just so stupid yeah. because I woke up in that like gut churning fear, like here, what am I, uh, one of my friends and teachers, Susan Piver, she's written a bunch of books. She's like putting a new book out She's like, nobody tells you this, but every time you put a new book out, it's like walking around stark naked 
and just asking everybody, so what do you think of my dad, Bob? Totally. You like, you like, you like my glaring white non-tan? Yeah. Do you like my flat butt? You know, like you, it's just so vulnerable. Yeah, and, 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 and that fear is real. Like, I don't know what my dad, I don't know that my dad will understand one word yeah. of what I wrote. I don't, I think he knows that I might be good at what I do, yep. which is enough for me, yeah. but I don't think that he'll understand the, all the spiritual, the spiritual agenda of the book yep. whatsoever. Yep. And that's fine. But like, part of me's scared shitless for him to see it. Part of me's scared shitless for, you know, current clients to see themselves in some of the vulnerable spots. But I also know that by that fear, that's what I need to share. That's what I need to lean into. That's what I, like, I think of those Olympic ski jumpers going off the end of that huge ass ramp, yep. leaning off the skis, sailing yeah. into the wind. And that's where you get the distance. That's where you get the points. Wow. And it's, it's, it's hard. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, it's such a common theme with people in the sense of wherever, whatever the fear shows up as, I mean, look like for me, same thing. I mean, like grumpy, like, like raise my voice a little bit, like, Ooh. like just not I'm like, who is that guy? My wife's like, my wife's like, Oh, you're really the awakened dad. I'm like, Oh, you're the awakened dad. You know? Well, like, there's a, <laughs> th- th- well, that's that phantom pest. So that like the dark side of permission to glow in the dark is phantom pest. Like I'm going to go swoop and control the things I can't control. There's this gr- great story about Wayne Dyer, who, who is one of the biggest preeminent spiritual teachers of our time, passed away a few years ago. Amazing dude. And his teenage daughter was watching him storm around the kitchen like breaking stuff looking for his keys and she's like mr spiritual teacher luminary for millions are you looking for the keys that are jangling in your pocket (laughs) (laughs) and he feels his pocket he's like yep (laughs) (laughs) that is so god that is so funny that's so good um yeah, that's, yeah, it's really interesting. Cause I, I find a lot, even for myself, it was like, I was actually listening to you say that. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what fear looks like for me. And sometimes I don't even know I'm in fear and I will be behaving a certain way. And it's an anxiety that is like under, underneath or the fears underneath the anxieties underneath the fear, one or the other. And then I, yeah, I see myself. And then like an hour later, the next day, I'm like, oh my God, I, I always feel remorseful. I always feel bad. You know, that well, I, that's like the double whammy hangover of your survival mechanism. Yeah. Like, like not only was it painful enough to feel the fear, but now you got to feel like crap about it too. There's there, like it, it, the, the, the refinement of this, like the Jedi levels of noticing your fear, yeah. to me, they show up as... Anytime I need to prove myself, if I'm like over-rationalizing or I'm like hyping this person up because they think my stuff is cool to elevate my own stuff, that's like that proving thing. I'm in fear. If I'm tired and scrolling social media and lamenting how somebody has so many followers and I don't or whatever, like comparing numbers, if I'm focused on numbers, that is an aspect of fear. Because I'm fear, I fear that I'm not important or I fear that I'm being marginalized. Or it's like all of these ways to just notice and then the fork in the road is always love. What can I do to get back into the game of love? Like love of the game, love of producing, love of discovering through conversation, through writing, just love of the game. And that's what pulls everything forward. Wow, man. That's a very, that's a very important point on the love piece. And so much of us, so so many of us were never taught truly how to love or truly how to love ourselves. So yeah. when we don't know how to love ourselves, it's very hard to love externally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And but it's never too late. It's never too late. The, the last part of the book, I, I include this part about the mechanics of personal change. And because 
what was missing from personal development, in my opinion, for decades and decades is self-compassion. Like if you're going to achieve and create the unprecedented, why not respect yourself for doing so? Why not respect yourself for even believing it's possible? Like loving yourself for even being at that game or wanting a seat at that table versus the putting yourself acceptance on the other side of the mountain of achievement. I mean, that was such a bullshit myth that's been sold into our culture over and over. And I'm like, I'm done climbing that mountain. I'm going to love myself on the way up. I, uh, that's, that, that's, it brought up, there's a quote, God, I, I don't know if it was Roosevelt or Winston Churchill. It was Churchill. And a quote that he made, well, I don't know the specific quote, but it, it was something around like, like the honor of the man that comes to the, to fight every day for the thing that is yeah. in them. Like, that's like what, that's what we don't celebrate. We celebrate the other things, not the guy who's shown up bleeding and sweat and tears from attempting to become who it is that he truly is. That's not the quote, but in that vicinity. Well, it's, you know, we, we celebrate the appearance or the illusion of success, the achievement versus the journey of the showing up. And the humility it takes to just be in that game for year in and year out. And fortunately, these are the things that we remember about people when they pass on. We honor that simple commitment to whatever their vocation was. It could be stock on the shelves at a grocery store, but they did it with love. And that matters. And it mattered that they lived and did that versus just the rah-rah achiever thing. And I, I think it's a, an important point to make. Yeah. So Permission to Glow coming out on? Pre-order is September 7th. And that's when I'm encouraging people to pick up the book September 7th. We were, we're including a lot of fun packages, including a workbook and socks and all this fun gear. And then uh, the publication date is October 5th. But people can go to permissiontoglow.com right now, correct? permissiontoglowbook.com. Book. Yeah, they could go to permissiontoglowbook.com and sign up for the email list. That's like all the fun stuff and giveaways we're doing ahead of the... And, and it's a pretty incredible art project at this point. Like I've written songs to go with the book that I'm sharing. There's chants, there's guided meditations. I really want people to have an experience with this book and to, to join us on the journey. So yeah, it's permissiontoglowbook.com. And if anyone, which most people will, want to get in touch with you, want to connect with you what's the best place for that yeah you can find me everywhere at this epic life facebook instagram certainly dot com this epic life.com and uh linkedin for sure just uh reach out say hello i love to to make new allies and would love to hear your feedback on our conversation any parting words of wisdom for this esteemed audience of three or four would be amazing Three or four million souls of infinite potential guiding their way to you at all times, Brenty, by your sheer force of will and intention. I would say you are the words of wisdom because it's your example that creates all this. The willingness to move past the predictable and the status quo into the big dream and to do it. And to do it not for the numbers at first, but to do it for the love of doing it. And to really embody everything we talked about, all four permissions unleashed. It's, that's cool to witness, and I'm, uh, I'm super happy for you and, and really impressed. Amazing. Casey, Christopher Carter, amazing to have you on this show. I, I, this has actually been a dream 
coming having you on this show because of how instrumental and a part of my journey you've been. So uh, checkbox for me on Dreamside. And I'm sure we will see you back again very soon. Thank you. For For sure. Thanks, man. It's been an honor. Hey, thanks for being with us today and joining me in my mission to help 100 million children live out their greatest life. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the Awakened Dad podcast and share with your friends and follow us on Instagram at The Awakened Dad. If you like what you heard today, please make sure to listen to our other episodes and thank you for being with us. 